This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Taking Control of Your Financial Life podcast, providing the simple answers to the complex questions asked about your financial future. Let's get you the answers you need about retirement, investing, asset planning, and the current market. Here's your host, Julian Rubenstein. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Taking Charge of Your Financial Life podcast. My name is Julian Rubenstein, and I'm the host of your show. I'm also the president of American Asset Management, a registered investment advisor located in Boca Raton. Today, we are very fortunate to have Howie Crooks, a partner at the law firm of Cozen O'Connor, to join us. I'm really excited to have him. He has a lot of interesting information to share with us today. So without further ado, let me welcome Howie. Hello, Howie. Hi, how are you? Great. Nice to see you. Why don't we start by uh, you telling us a little bit about, well, basically you and your practice. Sure. So I'm an attorney that practices in elder law and estate planning in New York, Florida, and Pennsylvania. I have been doing this for over 30 years and uh, really enjoy the ability to work with people to help plan their estates, achieve asset protection in the face of government benefits. We handle guardianship type proceedings, special needs planning, Medicaid planning, veterans benefits planning, a wide variety of issues that affect the elderly and people with disabilities. Great. You know, we talked about earlier, but why don't you share with our audience Medicaid planning, because I'm sure most people don't even know what that is. And it's and I've learned that it's just such a very important thing for people to understand, especially as they get older. Sure. So uh, Medicaid planning has to do with accessing through government benefit programs financing for the cost of long-term care, right? So people either self-finance, which means they have a a very high net worth, or if not, then they've got to look towards Medicare, which really doesn't pay for very much in the way of long-term care services. And people are very surprised to learn that their Medicare coverage is limited in that regard. And so if they don't have a high net worth, and if they are not going to be able to rely on Medicare, then there's only two other sources of financing they're gonna have to either exhaust their small amount of assets, or they're gonna have to have a long-term care insurance policy in place, or they can look to another government benefit program known as Medicaid, as opposed to Medicare. Medicaid is the only government program that truly does pay for long-term custodial care, whether it be at home in an assisted living facility or a nursing home. And when you look at nursing home costs, generally speaking, they run Ten to $12,000 a month in the South Florida area, upwards of fourteen dollars to $18,000 in New York and uh, somewhere in between in Pennsylvania. So you're looking at very exorbitant costs for custodial care, round-the-clock care, and most people find that they either cannot afford it or if they, they can for some period of time, it would result in either partial or full exhaustion of whatever assets they do have thus preventing them from taking a lifetime of savings and being able to pass that on to their kids or a surviving spouse. So Medicaid planning says, what can we do to plan our estate so that we can both qualify for government benefits and protect some of those assets? So how do you go about doing that to protect your assets and still get the coverage? Well, so the first thing I would say in response to that, Julian, is that each state has its own rules. So what we talk about today 
has to be taken with that in mind. So whatever I say might apply in one state, it may not apply in another state. So if you have listeners that are outside of uh, New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, anything that I say has got to be looked at with a view towards if I want to qualify in California or wherever I may be, I've got to make sure I get those specific rules in mind before I do any kind of planning. Having said that, each state has rules that govern the disposition of assets and certain asset transfers are going to result in a disqualifying period where if you made the asset transfer you will not qualify for medicaid and other asset transfers are acceptable and then legitimate and you can engage in them without jeopardizing your eligibility for medicaid so we as elder law attorneys help educate our clients and implement a plan that is within the parameters of acceptable planning as outlined in these regulations. So just by way of example, in Florida, if you own what's called income producing real estate, Medicaid will not count it as an asset and you can protect assets by purchasing income producing real estate and still qualify for government benefits. You just have to know the ins and outs of how that works. But if you know that this is a possible planning opportunity, then you're going to avail yourself of that opportunity. And that way you can have your cake and eat it too, so to speak, because the asset can be protected, yet you're still qualifying for Medicaid and you're remaining within the parameters of the Medicaid eligibility requirements of your state. But do they, does the government take the income from the property? So in that case, yes, they will take the income. But just by way of example, right, if you had $200,000 in assets and the Medicaid asset limit is $2,000. You could purchase a real estate property for $200,000, take that asset off the table, and then whatever the fair market value of rent is for that property, it's true, that is income that will have to be used towards the cost of your care. But in that case, most people are comforted by the fact that they save the principal and they can pay the income towards their care, but at least they protected the asset. Right, and so let's assume it throws off 10,000 of income. So you're saying the government will pick up the other 100,000? Well, let's take out our calculators for a second, because if you're throwing out $10,000 of income, how much principal are we talking about? Because fair market value rent is somewhere around three, three and a half percent. So if you're throwing off that much income, then frankly, you have enough assets that you can pay for your long-term care just on the income alone. No, you know, I was saying if you have a $200,000 property, so even at three and a half percent, that would be 7,000 of income. Would you still qualify? So, yes, you'd still qualify. You would have to use the $7,000 spread out over 12 months. So take 7,000 divided by 12. That becomes an increase to your monthly income. But the $200,000 wow. is uncountable. And then when you pass away, it goes to your heirs. That's fabulous. It's the first time I've ever heard of that. The only thing I've ever heard of is in Florida, the, the one spouse can turn over the assets to the other one, and then qualify. That's the only way I've ever heard of it. This is very, very interesting. Yeah, and there are other planning opportunities. For example, you know, oftentimes there's a family caregiver, okay? Now, that family caregiver doesn't expect to or necessarily want to, quote, unquote, get paid, right, for doing this, because they're doing it out of, you know, love and affection. But if you are providing extensive caregiving, some people don't know or realize you can actually get paid to do that. And because... It's pursuant to a written personal care contract, which is accepted by Medicaid. When you transfer money, instead of it disqualifying you, you can take the position that it is payment and compensation for those services that are being rendered, 
right? And that is a legitimate way to move assets over to another family member without jeopardizing your eligibility. That's very, very interesting. But I've heard of that before and, and it works very well. And I think what we're trying to you know, educate the audience in that you can qualify for government assistance without going broke first. That's right. I think it's just a matter of, uh, again, wherever you're, you're situated, whatever state you're in, you're going to want to consult with somebody who's expert in the rules in that state because they're going to know all of the nuances, right, of qualifying and planning what works, what doesn't work, what are the traps for the unwary, and you make sure you get your planning in place and you make sure you do it right. But what you said is absolutely correct. There are ways in which you can both qualify for Medicaid and preserve assets. You just got to know what you're doing. Okay, great. And by the way, is there ever a way to get coverage for in-home care? There is. There are uh, some obstacles depending upon your state here again. For example, in New York, there's no wait period. There are no wait list for home care services. In addition, you're more likely to get 24-7 caregiving in New York than you are in a state like Florida. Having said that, Florida does have a wait list. Sometimes that wait period could be several weeks, it could be several months, and it could even be upwards of a year, which is very, very difficult to cha- and very challenging to navigate because if you need the care now and you first put your name on a wait list and you're not going to get called off the wait list for a year, then you got to find some way, don't you, to provide the caregiving while you're waiting to come off the wait list and have Medicaid pay. So that's a challenge in Florida that doesn't exist in New York. But having said that, is home care available in Florida? Yes, it is. You just got to know how to navigate those waters. But as you're saying, if you, you could end up paying for an entire year, which could become impossible. Right. And sometimes people, you know, they make sacrifices, frankly. They don't get enough care that they need. Or we have what's called an institutional bias in our Medicaid system that because states are allowed to impose a wait list and somebody needs services now, even though they might be a good candidate to receive services in their home, they're forced into the nursing home. Why? Because states are not allowed to impose a wait period for nursing home Medicaid, right? So you see the the difference there. On the one hand, you'd rather stay home and you are willing to go on the wait list, but for the fact that you can't wait a year. So in order to get the needed services today, you simply opt for the program that allows you to get those services immediately. And the only program that does that is the skilled nursing facility level of care. So they're forced into the nursing home just to get the care that they need now. And I assume you can't get on the list until you have less than 2,000 of assets. Well, technically, that's not true. You can get on the list. It's just that once you are called off the wait list, they give you about 30 days to submit your financial documentation, which they will then review. And if at that point you still had more than $2,000 in assets, you would be declined and not approved. But you can use that 30-day period to do the planning that's necessary. So by the time you submit the financial documentation, you must have sort of restructured or engaged in planning so that you meet the Medicaid asset limit. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, Let's move on. I know you also do a lot of work in estate planning. And I think we talked about rule-based planning versus revocable trust-based planning. You want to educate us on that? Absolutely. So most people think of uh, estate planning as involving a will. And some people think that if you suggest a trust, they may think, well, I don't have enough assets for a trust and I don't want to get involved. But there are some advantages to doing some trust-based planning over just a will-based plan. So what's the difference? So in a will-based plan, you just have a will. 
That's your testamentary document. That's where all your wishes are contained as to what is to happen with your assets when you pass away. A revocable trust-based plan uses both a trust and a will. They work in conjunction with each other. And most of of your wishes are contained in the trust document. And the reason why people opt for the trust instead of just a will-based plan is, A, if you become incapacitated, having your assets in the trust is better than just having a will because in that case, you only have a power of attorney that allows somebody else to manage your assets. And oftentimes through the passage of 10 or 20 years since you signed the power of attorney, banks and financial institutions may not know who the agent is that's appointed under the power of attorney. And when they walk into the branch to use that power of attorney, there are a lot of uh, challenges to getting that power of attorney honored. But if you set up a trust, at the time that you set up the trust, you're providing a copy of the document to the financial institution. They have it on record since day one of the account being opened, and it provides for a more seamless uh, transition of supervision and management of the assets in the trust than if you didn't do a trust-based plan and you only had a will. So asset management during incapacity is one of the benefits. The other benefit that uh, serves as a primary reason why people do a trust-based plan is probate avoidance. So let's talk about that for a second. Probate is not the, you know, the enemy that a lot of people think that it is. We do probate all the time, and it's really not that big a deal. Having said that, if you own a piece of real estate and you want your heirs to be able to deal with that real estate, for example, sell it immediately upon death, they're going to have an easier time doing that if you used a trust-based plan than if you did just a will, because a will has to go through probate, and a trust does not. So the probate process can take several months. Sometimes it can take four to six months. At that point, somebody may come forward and say, I want to buy so-and-so's property. It's in the estate. But then the response is, well, okay, I'll sell it to you, but you got to wait until we go through the probate process, and then you may lose that buyer. Whereas if it was in the trust, the trustee has the authority to immediately dispose of the property in furtherance of preserving a a trust asset and converting it into uh, liquid cash. And you will not have to go through probate in order to effectuate that kind of a sale. Plus, you can can also uh, arrange for much sooner distributions from a trust than you will from an estate. So for those reasons, it just streamlines everything. Many people opt for the trust option. Okay. Um, I want to just go back to a second for the POA because we recently in our firm had an issue where first they don't, as you say, they do not like to accept POAs. They they make us go through hoops to get them ex- accepted. And also we just learned that if the POA doesn't specifically state you can change an IRA beneficiary, then you cannot do it. So we have a client in that situation and now that's going to have to be probated. The IRA is opposed to just passing right to the heirs. So you bring up a great point. If the trust document had been done correctly, right, and the IRA beneficiaries had been done correctly. Let me speak to that specificity piece that you mentioned. So Florida's power of attorney law was changed in 2011, and Florida legislature determined that general clauses in a power of attorney were not going to be valid in Florida. So if you say something like, my agent has the authority to do anything and everything that I could do, that's meaningless to the Florida legislature, and it's meaningless in a Florida power of attorney. They've determined that if you're going to give authority to somebody, then you need to be specific. So there's a specificity requirement. So 
in the power of attorney in Florida, you've got to go out of your way to make sure anything that you can contemplate that you want your agent to be able to do, it is spelled out in language that clearly communicates the authority. And you just can't use a catch-all phrase to allow your agent to to be effective. And some people don't know that. And in particular, you know, people in today's day and age, you you got your uh, legal Zooms, you've got your internet-based powers of attorney, and they come up with this just sort of generic form that you can download and use in any state you want. But it's not going to work in Florida. And if you didn't know that, you may have thought you did something good by at least having that document signed. But the execution requirements may not be valid and you may not be complying with Florida specificity requirements. So you got to be really careful with, you know, that kind of Internet based, uh, you know, forms. Yeah, it's interesting. And we had a case just like you mentioned with the IRA beneficiary, but the power of attorney was created in 2009. And we're still fighting with TD Ameritrade to accept that, even though, as you just said, it's the law and they're supposed to accept it. These brokerage houses can be very difficult. Um, I'm also, you know, it's interesting. TD Ameritrade does not ask us for a copy of a revocable trust. And I think after this conversation, I think we should probably send it in regardless. Yeah, either that or at least a certificate of trust, which is like a summary of one or two page summary of the relevant provisions of the trust that the financial institution needs to know in order to open up an account. This way, you're not walking in the same way as the power of attorney 20 years later and saying, hi, you don't know who I am, but I'm the trustee. And they, they've established it at the foundation and the inception of opening up the account. And let me just comment, Julian, on what you were talking about with TD Ameritrade. So what I find in dealing with financial institutions is that these national brokerage houses, right, they're licensed to do business in the state of Florida or whatever state, right? But they apply with an even hand some general bank or financial institution policy. It's not state specific. And they don't know the rules in that particular state regarding honoring a power of attorney. And so it's really important when you're dealing with a national company to make sure you get in touch with general counsel to advise them, hey, Florida law says X and it's in my favor. You may not be aware of that. But now that you are, would you like to consider it before I file my papers in court, forcing you to honor my perfectly valid power of attorney? And oftentimes when they see the threat of litigation and they realize that they have not been state specific in their conduct, uh, that you may find that they will honor the power of attorney where initially they did not. That's great. So is there anything we have not spoken about that you'd like to share with us regarding estate planning or Medicaid planning? Because I know we've covered a lot of ground for the audience. How much time do I have, Julia? <laughs> uh, well, you know, one of the things I do want to touch on for sure is the importance of uh, titling assets properly when you use a revocable trust. Many times people will come into my office and they'll have a trust prepared uh, by somebody else and, uh, you know, I'll talk to them about it. I'll review it. I'll make sure it still achieves their objectives. And then I'll ask them this question. So tell me, what assets are titled in your trust? And they look at me and they're like, ah, well, I, don't, I don't know. I thought all of my assets were in the trust. So I say, okay, let me take a look at your bank statements and let's just review that together. And sure enough, you know, in many instances, Either no assets have been titled in the trust. They literally just went through the heavy lifting of creating a trust and signing it, right. but didn't realize you got to retitle assets in the name of the trust in order for the assets to get into the trust, right? Or other times, some assets are in the trust, but some assets are not in the trust, so it's not fully funded. 
And that's a really important component of utilizing a revocable trust or any trust. You must retitle assets into the name of the trust in order for it to be effective. Yes, very true. And a lot of times we'll see empty accounts, right? They'll open up accounts in the name of the trust but never fund them. Exactly. That's very true. Well, this has been very educational. I have to tell you, it's the most informative podcast I've done in quite some time. So I really, really want to thank you. And I'm hoping you'll come back and join us because I know we had some other topics to cover and we can cover them on another show. Yeah, sure. It'd be my pleasure. Well, everyone, let's, I want to thank um, Howie Crooks and we'll hopefully uh, see him again on a podcast real soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Control of Your Financial Life. For more information about today's topics, please visit or check the show notes for more important information and links. Share, rate, and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.